Good to see you guys. Welcome to Portico Church Arlington. My name is Nate Wagner. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's so good to have you guys here. I've got a couple of announcements for you before we jump into the sermon this morning. Um, first is Abide is coming up on the last Thursday in July, July 28th. Abide is a time on that Thursday when we open up our doors and just provide a place to pray. So you can feel free to come in and pray, stay as long as you want. You can also come and give people prayer, offer prayer to people if you have availability to do that. Um, so please join us for that. It's from 6.30 to 7.30, Thursday, July 28th. Um, and then also coming up in August is Portico U, which is kind of the teaching ministry of Portico Church. We are going to start going through the book of Ephesians. And it's going to be on Mondays um, from 7 to 8.30 in the, in the evening. But we're going to do a special introduction to the book that is going to be led by one of the professors at Reformed Theological Seminary up the street, one of our partners, Dr. Paul Jean. And so he's going to come in on a Saturday, um, August 13th, from 10 to 12 to lead us in an introduction that's going to really jumpstart our study. So please register for that on the website and join us if you can. And then last but not least, if you're new or checking us out, or if you've been here for a little bit um, and just haven't made your presence known, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. There's a Connect card in front of you in your seats. You can also fill it out at the hospitality desk in the lobby. Um, and you can just let us know that you're here. And we would be happy to get you connected to the life of the church. So if you get a minute, please go ahead and fill that out. It's a little QR code in front of you. I mean, you can also do it with um, our hospitality team who's led by Jack this morning, so you can see him. And yeah, thank you for joining us here this morning. All right, Hebrews, we covered a lot of ground last week, and we're gonna slow down this week because we are going to um, just meditate on something that is one of those places in scripture where you really get kind of the core of the gospel. And it's only three verses, but it's rich. And you could actually think about it for your entire life. I hope you do. Um, but before we get into it, we have to remember where we've come from. And so if you remember, the author of Hebrews is trying to encourage these Christians, these fairly new Christians, um, all Christians are new Christians at this time, to persevere, to keep going. And they're facing all kinds of stress and pressure to abandon their faith, to question their faith, to let go of their faith. And so the author is writing basically as a pastor to these people, and he's giving them all of these reasons to keep going. And one of the reasons that he's given them is that Jesus is the best high priest that there is. And so in the Jewish culture, the high priest was the representative of God, of the people before God. So he would go before God and represent the people. And then he would come back to the people and basically give them what he received from God. And if it was a good priest, they would receive mercy. And if it was a bad priest, they might receive silence. Or even worse, the high priest might not make it out of the holiest of holies. And so today, we are going to come to understand that Jesus is a great high priest, and we're going to basically learn who Jesus is um, by looking through the lens of his priesthood. We're going to learn who he is, but we're also going to learn how we can respond to that. 
So we're going to learn who he is and how we can respond to it in these three verses. So you can turn with me. We're going to be in Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. I'll go ahead and read these. Um, I'll read this for you. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we, um, we need you. We need you this morning, and we need you specifically through the ministry of your Son, interceding for us, sitting at your right hand, representing us. And Lord, we... Um, we re- we've reflected on our need. We've reflected on the majesty of who you are, the goodness and the purity of your word, and how it exposes us. And so, Lord, I ask that we would now go and take refuge in the only place that will actually reconcile us to you in your Son. And God, I pray that this morning that you would, you would send your Spirit to help us, Lord, to wake us up to our, um, to our exposure before you, but also to wake us up to your goodness, to your mercy, to your kindness, to your heart for us. So God, we, we ask that you would be here with us here this morning, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. I'm sure some of you guys saw the pictures released from the new um, telescope or whatever it's called, the, the Webb tel- telescope, James Webb, yeah, yeah. So, a grain of sand held at arm's length. And one of those pictures had so many galaxies in it. And it was a grain of sand if you're looking at the universe. We can't even understand that kind of perspective. Like, if you think about it for long enough, you will just get lost. And that is so helpful. (laughs) That's so helpful for us. Because we live in a culture where we become really, really big. We live in a place where we become really big, really important. Things start to revolve around us, what we do. And so to think of the scope of the universe, just as represented by that one picture that is a grain of sand, And then we remember that Scripture tells us that God created the heavens and the earth. He created the entire cosmos. That there is a God that stands beyond even the vastness of our universe. And it's hard to fathom. And if you remember last week, we learned that his word comes to us and it judges us, it pierces us. It discerns us, and it exposes us. Verse 13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. 
And so we have to go back there to understand the power of this passage. Because if you don't first place yourself in exposure to the God of the universe who created everything and who is coming to hold you to account for everything you've done, everything you've thought, everything you've believed or haven't believed, every rebellion against him, every rejection of him, every time that you have elevated yourself into the position of God and removed him from his throne, well, then you don't really need a high priest. There's nothing for a high priest to do. But if you are standing in that position and you're exposed and you feel the helplessness of coming as a sinner before a holy God, then all of a sudden the only thing that matters is a high priest. The only thing that matters is a high priest. And so in verse 14, we see that we have a great high priest. And he's great in this way for a number of reasons. First, he's our high priest. Second, he is in the heavens. Third, he's Jesus. Fourth, he's the Son of God. Fifth, he's on the throne of grace. We're going to go through those because we're learning about who Jesus is. And that will help us understand how to respond to him. So first, he is our high priest. What does a high priest do? What does a high priest do? Well, in the background of this passage is the Day of Atonement. Because we get a picture of the high priest, one of his functions was to enter into the holiest of holies, the place in the tabernacle where there was the Ark of the Covenant. It was the dwelling place of God, the local presence of God with his people. So the high priest, once a year, would enter and he would have to make purification and sacrifice for himself and for the people in order to go and do that. And he would go to the dwelling place of God and he would receive from God mercy, even though what was deserved was judgment. And so the high priest, his business was to make atonement for the people, to offer atonement, to offer a sacrifice to God that would allow God and man to be reconciled again. And the tabernacle, it's important to know that the tabernacle is patterned after the Garden of Eden. And if you remember, in Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve in the garden, walking with God, the presence of God filling the good creation. And as soon as sin enters the garden, as soon as they disobey, they are taken out of the garden. And I think what we can learn by understanding that Jesus is now up in the heavens, which we'll get to in a second, is that the dwelling place of God actually rose up off of the earth and is now in the heavens. So God created earth, he created the garden specifically to be the place where heaven and earth would meet. It was the meeting place of creation and creator. And there was an intimacy and a relationship and a beauty that was created in the garden that was supposed to go and fill the entire earth. But because of sin, that was removed. Adam and Eve got put out of the garden. And so their hope for having that communion, that relationship, that intimacy, that closeness with their creator was in jeopardy. The tabernacle was constructed to remind Israel that God had not forsaken them yet. But 
it also reminded them that their sin was always before them. And it was always separating them from a close relationship with God. And so the rhythms of uh, the Israel, Israeli life were to repent, to offer sacrifices, to cling to the faith of a promised deliverer who would deliver them from their sins. And so by the author saying that we have a great high priest, he's saying that Jesus has fulfilled that. Now, there's a couple of things that are very kind of like minor details that are important. Um, when a priest died or a high priest died, they were always replaced because you had to have a high priest who was living, who would continue to offer sacrifices for the sin. And so it's interesting that he says that we have a great high priest and then identifies him as Jesus because Jesus has already died. And so this is actually a pretty radical claim. It's alluding to the fact that Jesus, yes, he died, but he's raised and he's living and he's continuing to fulfill his office. And we're going to learn later next week and then later in Hebrews, is that his priesthood is now eternal. So there is no priest after Jesus. He is the one who makes atonement for us. He is the one who represents us to God. All people. You don't need to go through anything else. You go through the high priest, who is Jesus. So he's our high priest. He makes atonement for us. He makes a way back into the garden. He's also in the heavens. So he passed through the heavens. This is referring to Jesus' ascension. And this is kind of mixed for especially early Christians because on one sense, they miss his physical presence. They miss Jesus walking among them and being kind of like a visible and tangible um, display of God's grace. But the author of Hebrews is showing us through this passage that this is probably one of the most wonderful things in the scriptures, that Jesus has passed through the heavens. We have a representative, a human representative, who has made it to be with God in the heavenly temple, sitting down at the right hand of God. What's he doing there? He's interceding for us. He is there as a demonstration of the perfection of his work on our behalf so that we can know that just as he is seated at the right hand of God, we will also be with God in the temple when he brings the heavenly temple back down to the earth, the new heavens and the new earth. He's in the heavens. And so this is one of the things that is important to understand, especially going back to that perspective of standing in the presence of God, where God is holding us to account. We must give account. I think some, it might be popular on some level to think of your relationship to God in this way, that God accepts me just as I am. I think people like to think of their relationship with God like that. They like to think of God's love as something, oh, he just accepts, he accepts me how I am. But that's not true. God does not accept you how you are. 
Because Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father, is showing us that God accepts you based on who Jesus is. God accepts you just as Jesus is. When God looks at you, when you are trusting in Christ, God regards you. He comes to judgment on you, not based on what you have done, but based on what Christ has done. And that's intercession, friends. That's what he is doing at the right hand. He's doing that now for us in our Christian life so that we can go to him, and we're going to learn about that in a second, so that we can repent with confidence that we are going to be received and welcomed by God, but he's also going to finally intercede for us at the great day of judgment when he judges the living and the dead. And we have a hope because he's there. He's there. So he's in the heavens. The next two go together, Jesus and the Son of God. So just saying that this high priest is Jesus at first doesn't seem like anything. It's just something that you could probably read by really quickly. But Jesus is Jesus is his human name. So it's identifying a specific human person with a human nature. This is Jesus of Nazareth, son of Mary, the carpenter. He is the one who is our high priest. And that goes hand in hand with him being the son of God, the eternal son of God. And these are themes that the author of Hebrews has already developed. It's this one person that has two natures. And it's what makes his priestly office effective, is that his sacrifice is perfect, it's unblemished, but it is truly human. So he's Jesus and he's the son of God. And then finally, he is on the throne of grace. So in the end of this passage, we are given instruction to draw near the throne of grace. And what do we find there? Well, we see this picture. Again, the tabernacle is a representation of the Garden of Eden. And the Garden of Eden is really kind of a representation of the heavenly throne room. The heavenly throne room is the presence of God the Father, with Jesus, the eternal son, sitting at his right hand. And the throne of judgment is transformed into a throne of grace because of Jesus, because of his sacrifice, because of the sacrifice that he offered, and that was part of the job of the high priest. Well, he was also the sacrifice. And so he transforms the throne of judgment to the throne of grace. And that's who Jesus is. He's on the throne of grace. And in the tabernacle, the tabernacle is kind of like this, um, or the Ark of the Covenant, excuse me, is kind of this bench-looking thing. It's like a box. And on top of the box um, is like this, the cherubim. And the idea here is that this is Jesus' throne. It's the throne of the Father, but equally, it's the throne of Jesus. It's the throne of grace. And so something that is important to hold together in this passage as we talk about his priesthood, as we talk about Jesus' intercession for us, is to not lose sight that this priest is also a king. He's a king. He's enthroned. He has authority. He has dominion. He has power. 
And so when we come to the throne of grace, we can come boldly, but we also come to a king. And we can't forget that. We can't let go of the reality that Jesus is not just our priest, but he's also our king. The human element of this, as you kind of, we've been talking a lot of like theology and like who Jesus is, and the human element of this is really addressed in verse 15, where we have something in us that has a longing for an intercessor, for a priest to understand us, but not just to understand us, to actually suffer with us, to be a co-sufferer. And so as we transition into how we should respond to him, this will help us if we understand kind of this human element and what Jesus is and why it's important that, he, that we understand that he was truly man and what that means. He was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he was tempted just like we are but without sin. If you remember last week, we talked about life as kind of this life in the wilderness, which is a big test. It's like a test of our faith. It's a test of, do we actually believe that God is who he says he is? Do we actually believe that we are his creatures, that we belong to him? Or do we believe, "Hmm, maybe, but I think we can do a pretty good job too. Well, Jesus entered that same test. He entered the same wilderness that we walk in. And yet he never sinned. And so already, like, as I read that, I kind of am like, well, then he doesn't really get it. But here's the problem with that. Is the problem with that is it assumes that it's easier to not sin than to sin. But think about it. That's not really how it works. As if, This is also from last week. As you sin, there's a hardening There's a callousness. You become less sensitive. All of a sudden, things that would have shocked you, maybe when you were a little bit younger, you just kind of let roll down off your back. It's it's not a big deal anymore. You're used to it. And that's the effect of being tempted and sinning, is that you kind of get used to it. And in some weird way, it gets a little bit easier. It's not as appalling. It doesn't affect you as much. But Jesus was completely pure, completely innocent, completely holy. And yet he faced the most horrific ridicule that we can imagine. He faced betrayal that we can't imagine. And so the temptation that he faced was real and it was powerful. I mean, you can also go back to the, to, the, to the wilderness when he was driven out after his baptism where he's tempted by Satan. Satan shows up to tempt Jesus. I don't know if you've been tempted directly by Satan, but we should probably talk about that if you have. I have not, but I would imagine that it's not fun. And it's probably pretty difficult. And there's another reason why we don't want Jesus to have sinned. Even though in some way, we th- I think we un- think that he might understand us more if he had, but he really wouldn't. Because sin is a distortion. It's not the essence. It's not the truth. 
And it's this, if Jesus had sinned, he would no longer have been able to make atonement. It wouldn't have been a perfect sacrifice. It wouldn't have been an unblemished sacrifice. And we would still need something to reconcile us to God. But there's also this, when we come to Jesus in his innocence, in his purity, in his sinlessness, we are received as one who sympathizes. And you can underline that word, circle it, and maybe draw a note because it's important. This, this word sympathize is really talking about one who co-suffers. So it's not like Jesus looks down and is like, oh, that's too bad. Hmm. I think that's kind of what we think of when we think of sympathy. He might even like feel bad for a minute. But this word is really trying to get at the fact that when we suffer, he suffers. His human nature, him as our representative, him identifying with us, means that he feels our pain. And so I don't know, I can't imagine, I was thinking about this this week, I can't imagine what it would have been like for Jesus as he was becoming more and more aware of the sins of his people, of the brokenness of creation, and to be feeling all of that. It makes the Garden of Gethsemane a little more understandable, why he was breaking down, why he was physically being crushed by the spiritual weight of it. He was co-suffering with us. And the result is that we have, we have a high priest, we have a high priest who is not only human, but he is the one who stands beyond the universe. He is the one who creates everything and sustains everything. And that's how he identifies with us. He loves us so much that he doesn't just sympathize, but he co-suffers with us. And that's who Jesus is. So how do we respond to him? How do we respond to Jesus? Well, the first thing is that we see is back in verse 14, hold fast our confession. And that's been an encouragement that he's starting to repeat, the author's starting to repeat to us. Hold fast your confession. I want to ask you guys this. What is your confession? Have you thought about that? Seems important. It also seems fairly objective. <laughs> it seems like that is something that we should know. What is our confession? And honestly, everything that we just talked about with Jesus is a pretty good summary of it. <laughs> and so you can go back and look at that, but I would encourage you to be able to hold fast to that confession. So that, that means you have to know it. It's not just something that you feel. It's not just something that you experience. It's something that you know because it's an objective truth. That's who we confess. We confess a God who entered into history and worked in reality, not just in subjectivity. And so a couple of historical helps that I want to encourage you to, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Dwell on those. Memorize them. Hold fast to them. If you push into those confessions, 
you're going to see your relationship with the Lord come alive in a new way. And the more that you push into who God is, and that's all a confession is, it's a statement about who God is and what you believe about God and what he's done. The more you push into that and develop it, the more you are going to be driven to do the second thing, which is to draw near the throne of grace. So these two go together. And if you try and do one without the other, it's not going to work. If you try to confess and hold fast to your confession, if you try to just think things about God without drawing near to the throne of grace, then you're believing in a different God. Because everything about who Jesus is is pushing you to draw near to him in, at his throne of grace. In John, in John 20, it talks about this, the Gospel of John. It says, the purpose of these things, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's not just so that you know the right answers. It's so that you have life. So your confession will drive you into prayer, into that vital relationship with God, drawing near to the throne of grace. And really, that is the best way that we do that is through prayer. So this is telling you to believe what you've been taught in the word and to pray. So simple. And yet, something that we neglect all the time. And I think probably a lot of us will kind of go one way or the other, where we'll either push into the doctrine and knowledge, but then prayer is difficult. And so I want to challenge you to make sure that you're paying attention to where your doctrine is telling you to pray. And your doctrine should almost force you to pray because it will bring you to your knees, both in humility but also in gratitude. And then I want to challenge those of you who um, might go to prayer more naturally and neglect actually understanding who God is. That it's really easy to start praying to a different God. And that will end in shipwreck. It's really easy to start praying to a God of your own understanding. I would say it's not only easy, but it's inevitable. And so you have to hold fast to the word and what the word teaches. But when you hold fast to the word and what the word teaches, you'll be driven into prayer. There's a couple of other ways that we kind of um, prevent ourselves from actually going to the throne of grace. And I'll tell you, this sounds nice in a, as an idea, but it makes me uncomfortable. To go into the presence of God and trust that he will deal graciously with me, it makes me uncomfortable. So I was thinking of a few ways that I avoid this, and I'm sure you guys might too, just so that we're aware of them that we're aware that we do this. Here's one way. One way is that you kind of lower the bar. And so when, it, when we think about Jesus as being a savior who died for sin, that's abstract enough that it's like, okay. But then when you are confronted with your own personal sin in the word, we get very intellectual 
well, like, surely that was written for that culture. And, you know, if we read it today, and you start kind of going back, and all of a sudden you are placing yourself as an authority over the word. And you're not letting the word read you. And so you're just lowering the bar. You're explaining away sin. You're readjusting the standards of a holy God so that you don't then go to the throne of grace. Because you don't need grace if you don't have sin. Another way that we do this is earning. Like, okay, yeah, I've got the sin part down. I understand what I need to do. So I'm going to make sure that I get myself together, and then I'll go and deal with God. That's a really subtle way that we are now functionally believing that our works can save us, that what we do can reconcile us to God. And so it's really important for both, for both of those two elements, and I think we all have both of them within us, we have to realize that what it's keeping us from is from receiving grace. And so this is the Christian life, friends. It's allowing the word to read you, to judge you. Allowing the standards of God to be what they are and then to go and plead with Christ. How do we do that? We do it with confidence. Confidence. Do you guys do that with confidence? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I do it with confidence. I am confronted by the fact that I don't know how often I actually do this. I don't know how often I actually sit down and take time and enter into the throne of grace personally, not just in generally, not just in theory, but personally. And I would encourage you to do that, to personally enter into the throne of grace. And this is also, notice, this is all in the plural. So we are doing this together. This is not my high priest. It's not your high priest. It is our high priest. It's our throne of grace. And so helping each other do this, reminding each other that we have an intercessor, we have a representative who's sitting on the right hand of God that we can go to in time of need. And the result is a reconciliation. That's the end result. When I have gone to the throne of grace in that way, that very deeply personal way, you are reconciled to God in real time. And yes, we know that we're reconciled to God because of what Jesus has done, and that's, there's a future element of that. But don't miss out on how that breaks into time now by confessing your sins and receiving forgiveness, receiving grace, receiving mercy, understanding who Jesus is a little bit more experientially by asking for forgiveness for receiving his mercy. And that will help. That is, that is the whole point of these two verses is that this is real help. This is really going to allow you to keep going in the Christian life because there is nothing like it so much better than anything else, right? Think about that. You are being reconciled and drawn into harmony with the creator 
of this ridiculous universe. He's the one who dreamt it up. He is the one who sustains it. He's the one who made it out of nothing. How big, how majestic, how wonderful he is. And he's brought us into communion with him. He's brought us back into the garden by the work of the Son. Keep going. Hold fast your confession. Draw near to the throne of grace. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you. Um, Lord, that's a lot. (laughs) It's overwhelming. But we get to enjoy this for our lifetime, Lord. We get to reflect on this, to worship you for it, for an eternity. And God, I ask that you would open our imaginations to um, think freshly about this, to think freshly and experience anew the work that you have done in reconciling us to yourself and bringing us back into your presence. And Lord, we look forward to, um, to the day where we don't have to imagine where we can just see it. And so God, I ask for, for myself, for this whole church, that we would continue to press forward, that we would continue to hold fast to who you are and to come to you in our time of need. And pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.